Hello and welcome to episode 33 of your favourite exchange, Lincoln Office 365 podcast, The UC Architects. Recorded on Saturday the 25th of January 2014, The UC Architects is sponsored today by Instant Technologies, experts in IM archiving, e-discovery and compliance applications for Link. Learn more and get started in minutes with a free trial at tryhraudita.com or follow at Team Instant on Twitter. We're also sponsored by Kemp Technologies. They're the number one price for performance load balancer for Microsoft workloads, and they're a gold-certified Microsoft partner in both messaging and communications. Kemp's load balancers and ADCs come with configuration templates for Lincoln Exchange. Kemp's new virtual load balancers are the most powerful on the market and have all the same features as their hardware load balancers. For more information and to download a free trial, go to KempTechnologies.com. Well, after that intro, I'm your host. Uh, I'm Steve Goodman, and I'm an Exchange MVP and Message Architect. And this week, I'm joined by some of my regular co-hosts, Dave Stork, Johan Velhus, John Cook, and Michael Van Horenbeek. Hi, guys. Hola. Hi. All right, so let's get started with this week's top stories, and we're going to be talking a bit about the Link Conference. So, guys, a few of you on the podcast today are going. Uh, John... Michael, Woo-hoo. anyone else? Yeah. Uh, sh- sadly, no. So. Just, just, just them pair, but uh, a whole bunch of other people. So Pat and, of course, the, the other modality guys are going too. And uh, there's going to be some good sessions from there. So uh, we wanted to run through some of the sessions from the UC Architects, uh, which uh, some of us who are going uh, to Las Vegas in just a few weeks' time are going to be very excited about. Uh, there's two sessions from Justin. Uh, the first one is understanding how Link Server 2013 leverages the complete Microsoft infrastructure ecosystem. And less of a mouthful, enhancing your voice rollout to make it a killer success for the business. Another one from Tom it is modality focused this conference, isn't it? Uh, 10 keys to ensure the success of your Link deployment. And one from Starley, uh, phone number management in Link Server 2013. Any other sessions that you guys are excited about? Well, I saw that um, Paul Robichaud is doing two sessions, um, IM integration, link integration with uh, Exchange. And, you know, being the odd one out, kind of the Exchange guy in the link conference, I have to go to this. (laughs) (laughs) Especially because I've had so much issues lately with that. You know, it's kind of, I don't know what's wrong, but these things kind of are very dodgy. So I I look forward to them and and kind of see how, what, Paul's approaches to these things. What sort of problems have you been having that you hope Paul might be able to help out with in his conference? It kind of, you know, I've been having, you know, IM integration issues that just don't work. It doesn't work. Hybrid IM, you know, uh, Office 365 Exchange Online and then Link on-premises. I yeah. just get don't get that to work. And, you know, troubleshooting is very difficult because it's partially in the cloud, partially on-premises. And if you do a trace in, in Link, you get these totally weird kind of error messages that doesn't make, don't make any sense at all. So I'm just so you're kind setting of, up uh, the IM integration in Exchange Online and expecting it to go through the edge and yep. looking on the edge to see SIP invites and not seeing everything yep. that you're expecting. Well, I, I see everything that I expect and I see a bunch of 
weird other things that I don't expect, but that are not, not documented anywhere. So basically, uh, I, I want to go. I've, I think I've got a pretty good understanding of how these things work. Um, I'm actually sure, without you know wanting to brag, I just want to go to the sessions and you know go over it again, see someone else talk about it, and just kind of get a confirmation that either I did everything I had to do, yeah. or get a confirmation that I just know shit about what I'm doing and I need to redo all the things um, but that gives me the opportunity to kind of refresh things and even talk to other people that are in that session because you know if you're in that session means that you're either interested in it having issues with it and I'm kind of uh, yeah yeah so or maybe just learn about it but you know kind of get the insights and to be quite honest uh, I, there are two reasons why I go to that conference first one is uh, to learn a little bit more about Link because my Link knowledge is quite rusty that's one and second of all you know talk to a lot of people the networking that's what I'm going to do and that's why I'm there for like, you're, like, you're an exchange guy why are, we, why are you here? <laughs> yeah that's, that's why I call myself the old one out you know? <laughs> it's an excuse to go to Las Vegas isn't it? oh yeah it is <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I was saying before the recording it's in a, a hotel in Las Vegas the area and that's, and I was watching uh, the film Las Vegas uh, Last Vegas uh, the other day and that's set in that same hotel I'm watching thinking I wish I was going to that conference uh, especially hearing about some of the parties so Michael you've been there's one you're certainly going to because you've been helping go back and forward with the organizing uh, for eNow yeah yeah so they're uh, launching a new uh, a new idea and it's called scheduled maintenance um, kind of you know everyone knows what when, when, when we talk about scheduled maintenance you're thinking about you know patching service on a Saturday night well this scheduled maintenance is intended to give yourself a scheduled maintenance on your own body on your own mind um, so they're hosting a party on Tuesday night, which I know there are some other parties, but they start at 9, at 9 p.m. And they uh, rented a rooftop bar called the Ghost Bar at the Palms. Um, and we'll have a link on the website. Uh, just check it out. It's it's pretty cool. It's, it's very classy. It's very awesome. So um, they're hosting the party. They're going to have a Twitter account, which is called at Scheduled Maintenance, where people should, you know, tell their stories why they deserve a scheduled maintenance, why they need it. Um, and there will be a website. I think it's schedulemymaintenance.com where you get uh, more information and we'll link through to everything. So uh, that's where you can get all the information. But for sure, that's one party where I'll definitely be. Um, you know, just the idea giving myself maintenance, that that's, you know, that's everything I need, maintenance. <laughs> right, okay. You're high maintenance. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, yeah that's too easy. <laughs> the, yeah, uh, I mean, uh, you know, go, going to a party at a conference makes it sound a bit like a jolly, but it is uh, it is where the most that the best networking can be because you do make friends that you keep in contact with after that, uh, whether that's dancing on the dance floor with other MVPs. And trying to get to know some of our Office 365 MVP colleagues. There's dancing? Dancing, drinking. All right, I won't be dancing. If I'm dancing, you know I'm really far gone. <laughs> uh, well, uh, and no one needs to see that. When you're a mech, I'll get you dancing. <laughs> I'll do a barbecue dance. <laughs> you, you've got it, haven't you? <laughs> so that so there's the Enow party then, and there's yeah. also uh, another vendor party, the Event Zero party. So, what's that about? Is that that was mentioned on the last podcast? 
Uh, yeah, we talked about it last week, uh, last podcast, I believe, right? Yeah. Uh, so just to recap, uh, because I didn't listen to the last podcast, and I might not be the only one. Go on, tell, tell us more, more about the Event Zero Party, just in case people miss that. Yeah, there's two, well, we, yeah, so we discussed last week, uh, our last podcast, and yeah. uh, there's two parties, one... I forget the times, but they're they're on the site, and uh, it should be fun. We're, we're kind of we're sponsoring it with uh, with Event Zero, and um, it was uh, quickly. I think the, the after parties might be tight in terms of um, seats left or you know registrations left, but yeah, but uh, but it should be a very good time because I'll be there, so you know it's going to be a good time. And the the other one is the linked up as well. Yeah, that's the um, that's uh, it's, it's it's some spot like audio like audio codes is one, um, but also Kevin Peters and his group um, for yeah. the link uh, users groups, um, and that should be really good. Um, and uh, if for those who I think we've we've talked about it many times, but you know the he sponsor, sort of has a sponsoring company for um, uh, local uh, user group events for Link in different cities, and uh, like Chicago's is coming up on the thirtieth of this month. Um, so that, those are really good if you haven't checked those out and there's one in your area. Um, but, uh, yeah, the, the, it should be a very good event. Yeah, so, I mean, the, the thing about people and going to these events and going to parties is it's it's worth going so you get a, a chance to sort of have a few drinks and then get to meet people. Instead of being stuck in your hotel uh, room after uh, a day of sessions, you this is where you meet those contacts where in six months' time, if you've got a weird question, then you're going to have someone that you can bounce some ideas off. Uh, and, and I've met them face-to-face, especially if you, you go on Twitter and you follow people uh, and you've got a chance to interact with them face-to-face. And rather than squeezing things in between sessions, it's at these kind of evenings where where you do get to sort of talk to people about what they do you know, outside of troubleshooting certain problems. Uh, so, yeah, that, that was definitely the most valuable part of any conference that I've been to. Uh, the, it, it's where the, the real sort of networking happens outside of the, the businessy sort of stuff. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's really, even for the uh, user group, uh, like here in Chicago, a couple, you know, some very well-known uh, UC community people live here in Chicago, like Jeff Schertz and Elon Shutnow, and, you know, they were, but we were at one of the ones a couple uh, sessions ago in the summer, and, you know, I'm standing in a bar uh, after the after the session, and, you know, I'm standing there talking with Jeff and, and Elon, and I'm like, you know, uh, I forgot who I was talking to. I'm like, you're not going to have, you know, there's not many scenarios in which you're going to talk to these two guys in this, you know what I mean, and just kind of talk about Link or whatever. It's That's why... Even more than the sessions, I go for that kind of stuff because you know it's a really good. Uh, even even it's a big city, like for Chicago's uh, sake, you know, it, big city, but it's still a small community in terms of you know guys working on this stuff. So it's you know it, you're not going to get those kind of opportunities often. So it's important. I, I think it's important to, to seize the day, as it were. <laughs> yeah, and and it's not only you know for MVPs amongst each other or uh, experts. Uh, it's just for everyone who's uh, attending a conference or. Uh, that has the opportunity to go out and talk to the experts because I'm sure at those parties you'll find us, you'll find other MVPs, you'll find uh, Microsoft people, uh, you'll find all sorts of people to have interesting discussions with, either on an issue that you have or just you know more uh, uh, more about you know life beyond work. And as Steve said, that's 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 where you know friendships are made and uh, where you keep kind of in touch with with those people afterwards. So the. Uh, the other big thing at the Link Conference is uh, our UC Architects giveaway. And so far, we've got 35 presents to give away uh, to listeners. And that was a massive giveaway at the last Link Conference. 
Uh, how, how much stuff did we give away? Was it something like 80,000? Well, we didn't give away, but vendors gave away. We didn't actually put our hands in our pocket to buy stuff, apart from poor Pat, who had to ship everything there. Vendors gave uh, to us to give away $80,000 uh, $80, worth of stuff. Or was it more than that? Real production licenses for some very expensive software, headsets, all sorts of things. So we've got uh, a bunch of stuff to give away this time. And there's going to be a live episode recording of the UC Architects at the Link Conference, as you might well imagine. And uh, Pat is actually here in the background. Pat, uh, this is just him. So is this a, a Microsoft-helped uh, uh, recording, uh, or is it a, uh, a standalone recording for the UC Architect? So Microsoft will be involved, and we mentioned this on episode 32 that um, Jamie Stark will be on the panel and several other people from Microsoft um, that we're still working out will be on the panel. And it'll be in the uh, the partner pavilion right there in the expo hall. Cool. So, yes, that, that's one to come along to. Uh, the other big event is uh, the Microsoft Exchange Conference, if you haven't booked your tickets for it yet. Uh, so tons of sessions have been released, uh, which you can find out more about on www.imec.com. Uh, and, of course, as you might imagine, uh, some of the UC architects are going to be there and uh, we're going to be doing sessions. Michael, you've got a couple uh, for uh, exchange hybrid-related topics, haven't you? Yeah, yeah, I've got two sessions. One about, you know, hybrid configurations, my uh, my favorite topic uh, of all. And then Michael one Van related, Hybrid. Uh, yes, hybrid, cool. <laughs> Everything <laughs> is about hybrid nowadays, isn't it? So uh, I got one session on, on building a hybrid deployment, uh, and the other one is about my own experiences with Exchange Online Archiving, which I see is getting more traction nowadays, you know, more requests of actually implementing it. And I have a kind of view from the trenches session that explains, well, this is what you need to take a look at, and this is what you need to be wary of. So um, very practical things, uh, you know, first-hand experience, which I'm going to share with whomever is, is coming to my session and listening to what I have to say. So that's going to be the, the first... That's uh, awesome. that's, is that going to be the first conference you've done, uh, the Exchange Online Archiving one? Um, that'll probably be the first one that I'll give that one, yeah. Yeah. Very exciting. Uh, and, of course, we uh, have got the UC Architects live at that. The details for that still have yet to be decided, but you can already see our session up on the IAMEC website. So, again, it's a, an official Microsoft-sponsored session. Uh, I'll be doing a session as well, uh, which is the opposite to Michael's. So, uh, if you want to swing both ways, uh, you can go with Michael to Office 365. <laughs> I'm not touching that one. <laughs> I, I don't want you to touching it either <laughs> <laughs> well if, if you want to go to the dark side with michael you can if you want to come back or you want to make sure you can come back to good old exchange 2013 as reliable as it is on premises then you can come to my session offboarding from office 365 to exchange 2013 so these two sessions actually go very good together. So you should attend mine for sure and then go to Steve's. <laughs> <laughs> he says with no hubris whatsoever. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. How to how to get there, how to get back. <laughs> it's like a journey. So yes, uh, so, so I'll be talking about that. The, the, the main focus of that session is not that you necessarily have to go back from Office 365. It's not some... Uh, oh, look, uh, NSA revelations type thing. But it's more about uh, the business case that uh, 
if you are going to go to Office 365, then are you going to be locked in? Uh, a lot of hosting vendors will try and keep you on board. It can be expensive to move off. This is really telling you that actually Microsoft are really surprisingly good when it comes to making it easy to move off Office 365 and move to your own choice of on-premises exchange version, uh, particularly Exchange 2013. So that's our top stories this week, which is really about conferencing stuff. And uh, we're going to move on to our topics today. We've got a bunch of Exchange topics. Uh, we've got a couple of Office 365 topics, and we've got some link topics. Uh, I must admit, uh, our ho- co-hosts today are more Exchange-focused. So if we don't give uh, the link topics the depth they deserve, please forgive us. But of course, all the links to those will be online. Uh, the first one, and I know Michael will be very interested in this one, is uh, based on uh, a blog post uh, by our other UC architect, Michelle Delroy. Um, so long, RPC HTTP. Hello, Mappy HTTP. This is a big new one. It's a change in the way that uh, ex- that off. I was going to say Office clients, uh, Outlook clients. Uh, I'm going to talk to Exchange 2013 uh, and Exchange Online uh, later on this year. Uh, so uh, there's a, a few uh, protocol plug fest uh, sessions uh, put online. Uh, Michelle found these and has, has been uh, writing a little bit about them. And uh, you've given them a watch, haven't you, Michael? Yeah, yeah. I uh, watched uh, through every one of them, and they were actually quite interesting because they uh, kind of show the reason why Microsoft cho- uh, chose to make the change, or actually is introducing this change because it's no, no it's not that they're dropping RPC over HTTP uh, from you know one day to the other one. They're just adding this ability, and then moving forward, this is where they're going to focus on. Um, so watching these these videos is something that I highly recommend, uh, so that you better understand what the Mappy HTTP thing is about, how it actually works, uh, what's, what's involved and underlying how the connections are made and uh, my understanding uh, of Mappy HTTP before the uh, the protocol plugfest was you know quite okay but they really helped me to get the details I needed to, to fully understand what was going on and, and what improvements it, it could have um, on, on, on client connectivity to, to uh, the exchange server. Of course, I still have a bunch of questions which will hopefully be solved once I, I get to play with Mappy HTTP. Um, but for now, you know, um, I can advise everyone to, to take a look, see how it works, uh, get some background information from Microsoft developers uh, speaking at the PlugFest. And uh, yeah, definitely do that. So this is going to affect uh, definitely all Office 365 customers then at some point by the sounds of it you know a new protocol uh what what that what's that going to be aimed at that's not necessarily going to be something that they're going to hold back on implementing to the service no um i'm i i Honestly, I, I can't remember if they were talking about Office 365 uh, in particular in, in one of the, the videos, but I'd expect if you know if, if Microsoft is making a change in Exchange, then given that they've been telling us since uh, the release of Exchange 2013 that Office 365 is kind of the the pilot, well, not really a pilot, but it's kind of the the environment where they will pull out. Uh, push out features first before they can actually come down to exchange on-premises, I'd be surprised if we won't see that before we, we'd see it in exchange on-premises. So, yeah, I, I can't expect or I, I do expect the, the change to be happening anytime, you know, in the, in the next few months, though. 
So if you've got click-to-run customers, well, click-to-run clients, sorry, and using Exchange Online, this will be something that you could, well, then get force-fed. Uh, so you should understand how it works if you're going to be the, the person troubleshooting uh, your side of the equation. Uh, so uh, well worth a watch. Second exchange topic of the day is uh, some troubleshooting guides uh, online. Uh, exchange 2010 Mailflow troubleshooting guides, uh, which are put up uh, on the uh, on Microsoft blogs, and basically it's is walking uh, you through uh, the steps that you might want to take uh, from a sort of PFE type perspective into troubleshooting uh, Mailflow in Exchange 2010, and a lot of this is is quite applicable to Exchange 2013 as well, but not so much for Exchange Online customers. And it's trying to understand uh, what's going on in the whole flow of trouble, uh, the whole flow of mail flow. <laughs> Is that the right words? Uh, <laughs> so you that said. makes no sense. <laughs> Trying try to understand all the, the mail flow and going through the process of troubleshooting where it might go wrong uh, and picking up some of, the, some of the things that you might not necessarily do. You know, if your troubleshooting of mail flow is opening up QViewer, then this is the kind of thing that you probably want to have a look at because it helps you get a bit better uh, understanding under the hood of what's going on in Exchange. Uh, so uh, we'll pop up the link to that, but uh, well worth looking at. Uh, another interesting one that we found uh, is uh, how to install Exchange 2010 uh, iFilters for TIFF files. Uh, so th- this article is uh, something I, I didn't know you could do. Uh, so I don't know whether any of you guys have had a, a similar sort of uh, request from a customer, but uh, the the... the the, the person that was writing about this uh, found that they had a customer saying that we want to be able to search every single type of file uh, possible. And in, in particular, we have uh, scans from faxes uh, that would like to be searchable. Uh, so what this does is it's a way of installing an iFilter for TIFF that provides OCR functionality. So the theory being that if you search in your inbox or a user searches in their inbox, uh, they will be able to find the context uh, of a fax based on the text inside it, which I didn't know that uh, was even possible. Uh, so that's uh, that's well worth a read. Um, but again, uh, that is definitely one only for on-premises. Yeah, well, I, I have mixed feelings about this one. You know, I knew that uh, the eye filters were extendable and that you could add, you know, various, uh, various sorry, eye filters for whatever you wanted to do. But um, for, first of all, TIFF files are usually quite large, so I, I can't imagine that having such an eye filter uh, could, you know, use up quite some CPU because OCR are typically CPU demanding. So I wonder, um, and I didn't read the article, so I'm, I'm kind of prejudiced here, but how does that impact an exchange server if you've got quite a bit of, of emails with large TIFF files going through and it needs to analyze all of them. Um, how would that impact? Because obviously if you do a design for exchange, you, you factor all the things that you know into uh, into it, but how do you kind of factor that into account? What, what is the the effect on your CPU memory usage? Uh, yeah, how how effective is it? Because, you know, honestly, I know a lot of faxing solutions that have these kind of filters built in, and then truly, uh, they they offer, you know, OCR recognition on, on documents that are being scanned, printed, uh, scanned or emailed or faxed or whatever, uh, and they do a pretty good job uh, at that. Uh, it's true that it's not searchable from Exchange at that point in time, which is the biggest benefit I see from this iFilter, but it's kind of, you know, 
it's cool that you can do that, definitely. And, you know, the geeky me says, wow, I want to try that. But I yeah, this don't... This isn't something that you just do, <laughs> no, obviously. No, truly it isn't. Um, I mean, if you just did it, then if you had a fairly low mail flow rate, then you'll probably be all right because it's not going to affect already indexed items, is it? It's uh, only if you rebuild uh, the existing search databases that it's going to re-index everything. <laughs> Yeah, 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 definitely. So um, it's, it's, it's just with new items, but, you know, new, if you have – it all depends on the amount of messages that you get and, and again, how the iFiller processes these file, file types. If it's really heavy, because if it takes a 10-meg TIFF file uh, – five minutes to process, that's a long time to, to be using CPU cycles and memory. Uh, and again, I'm, I'm stretching, you know, my, my, my thoughts here. I'm just thinking out of the box. For all I know, it just takes a millisecond to process the 10 meg file, file, and what am I brabbling about, you know? Uh, but still, these much are the things that, that... These can get pretty large. Yeah, they do. Files, typically, that's why I'm a little bit concerned, because they're pretty large, and you know, search is already consuming quite a lot of memory and 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 and, and um, cpu and and what if you're you know it does happen one, once in a while if, what if your catalog becomes corrupt and you need to rebuild it what's the impact then um so it's it's, it's good to see that it's possible and they give a lot of information on, on how to actually do the things but i'd like to see more information about you know sizing impact uh, cpu things operational point of view though yeah, but isn't that the the issue with all the third-party or additional eye filters? Because the the filter from Adobe, I think it's also not clearly mentioned how much resources it will consume when you're implementing it. Yeah, I, I suppose with the PDF filter, in the same way that you don't survey how many Word documents you get as attachments versus Excel or PDF, yeah. you 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 not you know it's not going to have to sit there for possibly. 30 to 40 seconds uh, indexing an image. Uh, it, it could take the time it takes to load it plus two seconds to index it. So that the yeah, it would be, it would be pretty it nice if there, there are more guidelines on that specific part, as Michael mentioned already. Yeah, I mean, the, the reality is that most uh, mailbox servers are fairly low CPU usage. It's fair to say for Exchange 2010. Uh, and most people aren't going to do this uh, because, one, it's going to be yet another thing to troubleshoot, yet another thing that prevents them from easily moving to the cloud. And uh, it's, it, it, it's, it's a toy to play with. It's interesting. It's something you might want to have a look in, the, in a test environment with. Uh, it, you know, it's, it, this, is a, this is for Exchange Geeks to have a look at. It's interesting in that sort of way, isn't it, to know what you could do. And it's like, well, you know, it's two thousand. It's 2014, and really we're only just seeing an article about that. You know, not every stone is, is left unturned. Yeah, and again, I, I, in my experience, I mean, the, like document scanners, these dedicated document scanners in some environments are very popular and very, you know, key pieces of business. So bringing that stuff and being able to make it searchable, uh, you know, that's a definite benefit I think a lot of companies would see. Yeah, I, I found it quite interesting. But Michael did uh, raise a good point about the performance issue, um, so that that's something to monitor uh, uh, correctly. Um, and yeah, well, for now this is only a manual for Exchange 2010, um, but uh, the, the the author has promised to um, update the the, the blog. When uh, results from Exchange 2013 are are known, because that was something that 
the author is uh, going to test. So perhaps even for, for those who have uh, Exchange 2013, this uh, could be an option. But still, uh, also there, uh, well, performance issues could be uh, could be uh, an important thing to monitor. Well, well it's, it's, a, it's a PFE blog anyway, so uh, if you do yeah. do it, get a PFE to do it and uh, get them to... <laughs> Get, get them to do the performance <laughs> testing first, then you're sorted. Yeah. Well, to, to be honest, you know, I, I personally I'd see less issues with 2013 because 2013 handles uh, indexing quite differently from that from 2010. So you'd be doing it any uh, anyway less than you'd be doing it in 2010. Uh, but still, you know, processing a single TIFF file might take quite a long time, uh, and it's good that it's basically using built-in Windows components, as far as I understood from the article, because I'm actually reading through it uh, as we speak. So uh, it's, it, it's good. It's kind of, it's, it's not really third-party, and it's not really built-in at the same time. But still, um, you know, some some questions. I, I'll probably, you know, have a go at it and see what it does in my environment. Yeah, and I think... Um I'm not sure whether you can make a transport rule that would uh, only index some some mails, but um, I have to look at that more closely in the, in the article. So moving on to another great exchange topic. It's full of PFE stuff this week, so uh, definitely the, the PFEs are, are going out in force uh, dealing with exchange-related issues. It's still out there in the wild. Uh, and it's a, a blog post uh, about slow response to exchange virtual directory commandlets. Uh, so I, I miss this one. Uh, it's, it's quite good, actually. I, I, I must admit, I didn't know about this flag. Uh, it's obvious, and I should have noticed it before now. But you've, you, you do type a get OWA virtual directory, and you're, you're doing that across a bunch of sites to get a bunch of information. It might be get hyphen OWA virtual directory fl star URL or something like that to get back all the the internal and external URLs. And it takes ages because it goes through each server, connects via WMI. Uh, well, apparently there's a flag AD properties only, and if you use that flag. If you use that parameter, then it comes back in seconds and it gives you just the information you're probably looking for, which is the bits that are stored in AD, obviously. And huh. those Instead of pulling the actual feeder itself. Yeah, instead of connecting via WMI to each individual server, it just pulls back what it knows about in AD. So if you've got, and we've all had it, where there's an, ex- uh, there's an exchange server in a site you can't get to from the one you're in for some random reason, or the servers are, mm, then and it just hangs there for ages before giving an error message, then, of course, this won't have a problem there. Or ones where it is high latency. So, pretty cool, actually. Um, And uh, a little tidbit of knowledge, which will save you a little bit of time every now and then. But it's worth knowing. Yeah, yeah, it is. But, um, you know, reading through the article, what I find very interesting is that, based on this, there's one thing you can uh, tell... Microsoft as they had a pretty crappy implementation of the get over virtual directory commandlets because as far as I understood every time you run it without the dash 80 properties only uh, parameter you're actually pulling the entire metabase uh, from that other server across the link that's just insanely crazy it's it's just why on earth if you're f- just looking for one or two parameters from that or, or uh, properties from that virtual directory why is it pulling the entire IAS metabase that kind of uh, 
makes me think what what were they thinking why uh, when they wrote that uh, that commandlet on the other hand it's good that there is the 80 properties only parameter which you can use to pull the properties but as you said it's pulling them from 80 and 80 doesn't have all the properties you might need uh, for that commandlet so it's still you know limited use uh, I, I, I remember I wrote the um, the virtual directory uh, reporting script which pulls all the virtual directory information from all your services in your environment and puts them into an HTML file, uh, and that takes forever in a distributed environment just because of this. Um, and I think that using the 80 properties only parameter I might actually speed that up. Um, so it is good to know, and I, that I didn't think about it earlier. Kind of, you know, it's, it's, it's cool that you know. Oh well, yeah, you learn something. <laughs> yeah, it is. It is. Um, but so, there'll be people listening going, "Really, these guys didn't know that." But I, but I, I'm one. Uh, well, there's there's two MCMs on the call. Both have been on the 2013 training, and neither knew it. So I feel a little bit better. So, yeah, we, we don't know. I think I was supposed to, Michael pointed out, but I just probably forgot. <laughs> That's my excuse. <laughs> but I think a lot of people will scratch their head when reading that article. Maybe, because I, I, I also didn't know it. And I've had, a, I had one issue with a, with, where I needed to pull all the information using the command labs. And it, what Michael said, it takes hours when, it, when it's a disrooted environment. It's it's not funny anymore. Yeah, so, so it's good to know. Uh, I I think that'll be uh, what I use in a, a script I'm planning to update soon. Uh, as well, <laughs> well because you it, know, it, it, it's all especially when it's a big script. It's all about the the time it takes to run. Yeah. It doesn't work for uh, Exchange 2007. So no, it doesn't. Uh, so 2010, 2013. Is that confirmed? 2010? Because uh, I did. I only uh, saw it for uh, 2013. Uh, for the uh, get accessing virtual directory uh, example. For, oh yeah, it's in 2010 uh, according to uh, TechNet. I just looked it up, so it, it's there. 80 properties only for 2010. Now our next topic is one I must admit I haven't read in detail uh, because it's another lengthy, very interesting post from Michel Delroy, uh, our fellow UC architect, on commandlet extension agents and XML case sensitivity. I assumed that uh, the title kind of said it all, uh, which is that uh, XML is case-sensitive when used with commandless extension agents. Uh, has anyone had a look at that article? Yeah. Um, so I kind of read through it, um, and, you know, it was a, it, the, the first thing that I have to tell uh, Michelle is like, wow, that that guy is awesome. You know, the fact that he actually found what was the issue, I would have read over it over and over again. So basically, as as the name of the, the blog post implies, um, there was in the code somewhere someone used a element or describes an element in the XML file with a uh, small letter, whereas the XML standard actually prescribes that uh, XML element names should be in capitals. So that is, you know, wow, that he actually stumbled upon that and, and found that is, is, is pretty amazing, though. So, uh, so the brief thing for people that don't know much about command extension agents is when you uh, run any command on an Exchange 2010 or above server, you can have a command extension agent, which is an XML file that sits on every Exchange server 
And when you run commands, you can make it do extra things. And those extra things are defined in XML files. And this is an article that says uh, he had a problem using these DXML files that define them, and it turned out to be uh, something that uh, was in the wrong case. And, and it looks pretty tricky to find. And the reason that's the, kind of the reason why I didn't read it. I sort of read it and thought, okay, I'll lodge the title of that in my brain and read it at a later date when I need to know it uh, if I come across a similar sort of problem. What, what problem could there possibly be that you couldn't overcome? <laughs> You'd be surprised. You'd be surprised. <laughs> um, but uh, but yeah, I, I I've always found command extension agents kind of tricky because uh, they're they're not well documented and uh, they and you, personally because I've not done tons with them, uh, I've found them a case of sort of trial and error in the lab before I can get it to do what I want. And then sometimes I found it's not actually done what I wanted it to do um, because it hasn't executed at the right part because I was expecting it to, to be the last thing that ever happened, but actually uh, the Microsoft, uh, the, their own code did something after it was supposed to have finished doing stuff. Uh, you know, weird things like AD latency, I suppose, have, have caused problems in the in, in the bits that I, I've used. So I, I've sort of uh, not, not, not enjoyed using them, I must say. Uh, so... Well. Yeah, and, and I can uh, testify to that that um, you know the, I like the functionality they offer and what you can do with the commanded extension agents. I don't like how they are implemented in Exchange. First of all, you know you have to make changes on all of your servers because it's not a distributed system; it's a, a per server kind of thingy. Um, there are quite a lot of limitations, and also when you, especially in Exchange 2013, when you upgrade your service from C1 to C2, you have to redo all the command. I was going to ask you, so that would get wiped yeah. off on a CU or a yeah. service back, right? They do, yeah. they do. So it's 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 really it's a pain to maintain them, and then also if you have them enabled and you have to do recover server, they can cause you a lot of issues as well. So I, I kind of try to stray away from them uh, and, and use alternatives where possible. But on the other hand, they do offer nice functionality. Uh, I think it was Tony Redmond that recently had an article on his blog where he said that he was using commandlet extension agents to uh, automatically update language settings after mailbox gets uh, enabled. And that's actually what they can do so good. You know, that's what these commandlet extension agents are for. I only wish that Microsoft find a way that we can, can centrally manage them and then push them onto all servers and then don't need to rebuild them after server gets uh, uh, upgraded, you know, that these kind of small things make it very hard to work with them, but other than that, yeah, they're great. Well, if there only were a website where you could uh, place new exchange ideas and, and feature requests. <laughs> <laughs> if only. If yeah, only. So that, yes, don't forget, exchange ideas. Uh, is it ExchangeIdeasScale.com. Uh, yeah, that's a good idea. But that that would be something that would be good in Office 365, especially when you think about the stuff like the, the language settings uh, as, as well. I mean, uh, what, what would work? Uh, having it per admin uh, or and uh, storing it in a mailbox. So if an admin or a provisioning account is used, then it pulls those, it, it pulls those out of a mailbox and you can import export them 
all sorts of different ways they could do it. Yeah, yeah. Well, the, the, the current way, uh, as Michael said correctly, uh, is it's just cumbersome and is the uh, main reason why I stayed away from them because you, it's a high maintenance in, 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 a, in a way and it breaks breaks uh, e- easily enough. And then when you, when, well, I could implement it, but when I'm gone and, and uh, the project is, is finished and somebody else has to take over and, and administer it, and that's a bit, that could be a bit tricky. So a more more centralized uh, solution would be ideal because the the, the features the, the abilities that they provide are very interesting. Yes, but they, yeah, I mean it's they, they don't do a lot that that you can't do outside of normal scripting. Uh, that it seems right. mostly useful for stuff where you're expecting uh, someone to to do all this stuff through a user interface, and you're just trying to do it all under the hood automatically. And it seems like there's kind of a small sort of use case for that where you're expecting people to you know provision accounts from uh the exchange admin center for new users uh where actually if they're going to be doing it that way they're not at that kind of scale where command line extension agents are going to be really useful yeah i mean that's been my argument too but in terms of the you know uh, losing these customizations when 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 upgrading i mean you know we've talked about this before i think and it's always been a point of contention of mine about since 2013 went back to using the web config for the link integration i mean why how how much time and effort would it be to have a simple part of the install routine you know a box comes up would you like to back up your custom configuration files i mean they're just text files can't you just copy them to some temp directory so you can put them back at the very least you know I don't know why that's such a big deal, you know, but uh, that'd be a nice thing for even for all those customizations to at least tell, you know, hey, we've detected a change to web config from stock or something like that, you know, and, and any other customization, um, do you want to back this up or even just do it and, you know, in documentation say, okay, in temp, there's going to be your old web config. So if you want to reconfigure link, just copy back it, you know, that kind of thing. The link integration, they, they just have to go back to the AD integration uh, like it was in 2010 well, nice, yeah. eventually because <laughs> how many times I've, I've run into issues with the web config, that's, that's ah. Well, we were talking funny. about the, you know, I mentioned when we were talking about the sessions at, at the link conference, I mean, you know, the, the, the link integration with OA in exchange is one of those things that, like, you know, I've done it a thousand times and every time I've done it, for some reason, it just mysteriously doesn't work yeah. directly and then it's, you know, you figure out, well, it's my web config. is. Well, is yeah. rough somehow, and you copy a new one in, and you're good to go. And it's like, well, okay, this is a text well, file. You, you know where to go onto these idea scale sites. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, as well, it's uh, it's up as, there. The, that suggestion is already up there. And for as, the, as, uh, link as, Pat has, as Pat has reminded me, uh, yeah. actually, I've got the, the web uh, site wrong. It's exchange. I'll say that again: exchange.ideascale.com for the exchange suggestions. Uh, so yeah, get those up there, uh, and uh, that's actually becoming. Uh, it's, it's not uh, that lively, but it's reasonably lively uh, in terms of back and forth discussion uh, with a bunch of exchange MVPs, MCMs, uh, random uh, people who uh, write blogs. You know, it's, it, anybody can put stuff up there, and uh, there's not a pecking order. On what. I've seen Dave has got into a few arguments on there with people. Well, our, well, discussions. <laughs> I, I don't agree with that at all. That's a terrible <laughs> suggestion. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, not not only me, but other people have, <laughs> have joined me. It's probably my ideas that you were commenting. No, on. no, no. <laughs> but, no uh, but but yeah, but I've, I've suggested a few ideas. Then people have said, yeah, they're not particularly good. So okay, mm. well, it's just an idea. So that, that's the good yeah, thing about it. We, you know, no one is too. You know, it's it, it's a, a community site. So if you've got a good idea. 
put it on there and it's either going to get voted up or voted down we don't know whether they're going to listen to us uh, but that's the idea and it's, it's not an idea of just one person either so I think uh, uh, Pat did the current site but it was an idea that came about from other people uh, including people like Tony Redmond uh, and, and other people who were keen to look at those ideas uh, uh, whether they're writing about Exchange, whether they're writing for Windows IT Pro, whoever they are, they're, they're keen to push some of the good ideas that come through there uh, with Microsoft to, to get them implemented. Uh, and, of course, anybody's idea could be good. Uh, and so that the link version of that has been quite successful in getting stuff done, hasn't it? Um, I think so. I mean, you know, people, you know, there's a million things with Link that uh, could be improved in some ways, I mean, from the client perspective. But, I mean, yeah, I think uh, it seems like the product team's actually paying attention to that. And, and, you know, uh, making changes accordingly. And already, Michael has submitted an idea. You guys gave me the idea for the command and extension agents. Well, I added the centralized management for command and extension agents uh, request into the IdeaScale website. So it's please go easy. and it's that easy add. to use. <laughs> it's vote that it easy. Up, vote it up. Vote it up. <laughs> yes. So please add your vote. I need it. Uh, <laughs> as long as you don't uh, kick my my Outlook signature saved in email box idea from number one, I'm I'm okay with that. <laughs> that 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 is a good idea though. Uh, moving on then. Uh, so I, I write loads of articles, and I need to update my yeah, blog with some of them because uh, uh, I, I write for msexchange.org mostly and. Uh, search exchange at the moment and uh, i've got some new ones coming out on windows it pro as well and i need to actually spend some time over the next week updating my blog with all the stuff i've done over the last couple of months elsewhere and uh, the, the first thing and it's not on our list of things for the show today is i finally finished my exchange 2007 to 2013 upgrade guide uh, which is thousands and thousands of, of words it's almost like a mini book uh, and that's the last part of that um, which will get a few edits I must admit because as I went along I've sort of uh, uh, learnt things and I've got to go back and edit a few of the earlier parts of that but it's a 17 part in total uh, series on Yikes. yeah <laughs> that's how it felt <laughs> you know when you do something you're like I started this ages ago it's the same sort of effort um, mixed in with other stuff as, as writing a book. Uh, you know, it's, it's, quite, uh, it, it's quite a big series. Uh, and that's moving from 2007 to 2013. And it's really aimed about the sort of uh, smaller sort of business upgrade because obviously building a DAG, upscaling it, is another topic that can go on top of it. But it's, it's from the, the point of view of... Uh, smaller organization virtualized and that's finished and and you'll find that uh, the last part of that will go online in the next few weeks onto msexchange.org and and then i'll be moving on to my next uh, multi-part series for them uh, well, uh, it, well i'm i'm starting a multi-part uh series on migrating from a open source solution to exchange so um, your multi-part uh, articles have inspired me in, in sort, of, uh, sort of a way. So, uh, <laughs> as, not as in don't do them. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, <laughs> stop. But, but, but well, it, it's uh, be, because it's uh, uh, well. I just recently published uh, part one, but um, and, and the link will, will go up on the uh, uh, UC Architects uh, site. Um, but. Um, uh, a multi-series uh, post is uh, for for complex 
um, um, ideas or, or, or processes, and, and especially a uh, transition or migration from a uh, well um, obscure, perhaps, uh, group air system to, towards uh, exchange that could be uh, well interesting and uh, should be uh, explored in detail. I think so. Yeah, um, that's been a big part of your life for a while, hasn't it? So that's a migration from what's the open source software called? Uh, Zarafa. And that is is that the the second type of migration you've done recently yeah. to 2013? Yeah, yeah, I did it last year for our own company, and uh, beginning this year, uh, I did it for another company who also had uh, the same product and uh, well I've done it twice now so uh, enough experience to to write some uh, blog posts uh, about that topic you know it's funny I was talking it's, it's weird because we, we do this sort of stuff now and uh, as you do it you sort of you go oh, I've done it a few times I'm really you know one of the only people that have done it uh, well, not for 2007 to 2013. I'm not one of the only people that have done that. But as in, you know, what you're doing with the open source products, you're one of the only people right. that's likely to have done it. And, uh, you know, we go out and we share it, and that's just the kind of thing we do. I, I was talking to, you know, one of these old hands, uh, 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 consultant uh, who worked, uh, you know, many years before he was doing Exchange. He worked on mainframes and all that sort of stuff. And... Uh, you know, worked with Exchange since version 4. So he's my age then? <laughs> no, 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 like 60 sort of thing. And, All right, not quite. You know, just, just about to retire. And he's like, back, back, uh, back when I worked for, for ICL, said, uh, which is ICL used to be like a government, a British government-owned and then spent-out type of IT company. And he said, you know, if we went and then wrote about what we were doing as a consultant, we would have got fired because we would have been sharing intellectual property. We didn't want anyone to know how to do this stuff. And it's, <laughs> right. just, and it's like one of those sort of poof, mind-blown type things. You think, why? Why would you not want to share with other people what you're doing? And, uh, you know, you do think are other consultants out there that still have that sort of ethos where you don't want to share what you're doing because in some way it makes you more valuable by knowing it or your company thinks that way? Um, it's weird, well, isn't it? well, yeah, well, my, my, well, I've talked about this with my own company, uh, obviously, because this is, well, uh, sort of a, also because it is our own environment. So, um, um, uh, yeah, we, you want to be careful with, with some um, privacy issues from companies, other companies, well, yeah, I mean, your own company, and, and, and stuff like that. Yeah, um, my, my uh, all my articles are based on my own stuff so if i've done it if i've done it for a customer or several customers it's not screenshots from their environment uh if you see my articles they'll all be exchange labs um which is uh which is yeah. a crap name for a fake company um, <laughs> if you look at part one of that 2007 series you see i try and justify it they deal with exchanging faulty products uh and they test them in a lab uh, it's not what I meant when I bought the domain name. I was sort of trying to retrofit a company. And the other one is right. uh, Lisa Jane Designs, uh, which is, a, you know, my, my wife said, oh, I'm going to start a company doing designs. And then right. she didn't. And I bought the domain for her. <laughs> <laughs> so I keep seeing that. And um, you'll, you'll see some other ones pop up, like Reddit Home Services, which is my brother-in-law's company that he never started, even though I made him a website. And, <laughs> uh, you know, that... 
that's that's different though to you know there's no privacy issues there because yeah. you're using either a bunch of fake names or you're using your own family and friends names or whatever to build your articles and it's complete you're doing it all from scratch and you and uh, you're doing it from a different point of view as well because you're doing it from the point of view of trying to teach someone how to do it um, right. or trying to show you you're imagining a subset of a bunch of customers that you've worked with and thinking, you know, what would be really useful for me to show them? Yeah. Um, well, in, in, in this case, uh, every, uh, probably every Zarafa environment is a little bit different and uh, uh, customer requirements are always different. So uh, I thought it was um, every customer is unique enough to uh, still be valuable as an, as an experienced person to, to hire. Um, and, and for, for others, this, this gets, gives a, a good idea of what uh, entails that migration. Uh, and uh, well, and, and hope to prevent mistakes I made, for instance, if I made any mistakes, obviously. <laughs> uh, but no, it's, it's good fun. I know if you're just starting out on doing a big, long, multi-part series, uh, one tip is to try and build yourself an outline for where it starts, the middle of it, uh, like a bullet point of what, what effectively all your headings are going to be for each right. topic. And, uh, and that's quite useful because then you don't get lost halfway through. Well, you can still get a bit lost uh, halfway through, um, uh, as I hate to admit. But at least you know <laughs> where you are with it. You know how far along you are with it. And you're not going to get sidetracked or go off topic. Uh, you know what you're trying to do. You know what you're trying to convey. And when you're looking at it and you're going, okay, you know, how far am I into this? You've got an idea of where that end is at the end. Because multi-part articles can be a pain to write when they're, when they're trying to tackle a complicated subject. And yeah. you're trying to sort of convey, you know, how would, I, how would I do it? And trying to convey your sort of way of thinking. But and it, where on the other hand, you can't show every single thing. So you've got to have an idea of what are you going to talk about like uh, in your Zafar article are you going to talk about uh, how you might uh, understand the, uh, how many messages are sent and received a day and then what are you going to do with that information how is that going to end up in the exchange calculator uh, what right. environment going to be built like are you going to are you going to show building a DAG or do you think that's something that people can find out elsewhere well the, the, well, the, in, the, in the first article I, you, uh, I get a Give a bit of an outline of all the topics I'm I'm going to discuss, I'm plan to discuss. But uh, when when time progresses and when questions come in, when they come in, I, I possibly will change some parts of it. Um, but the, the main focus will be uh, how to get from 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 point A to B, and not necessarily uh, how to build Exchange 2013 or anything like that. Um, mostly the conversion from features from Zarafa to uh, the features of uh, exchange. Well, that's going to be well. That's going to be one to watch. So we're going to make sure there's a link to your part one on the website. Because I haven't got a link to that there. Right. Uh, and I definitely look at uh, look forward to that one because uh, I did a, a similar uh, thing, but that wasn't multi-part article. It was just uh, I think a one or maybe two separate articles on uh, Lotus Notes to exchange migrations. And uh, I didn't expect, you know, much uh, feedback on them, but those were actually two articles I had a lot of feedback on, a lot of discussions coming from people, you know, emailing me and saying, hey, it was useful, uh, how did you do this or how did you tackle that? Um, 
because no. it wasn't a technical point of view like, hey, this is how you install that tool, X tool, Y tool, whatever tool, and how you actually do the migration. But it's more like, hey, if you tackle a Lotus Node's migration, keep in mind that Lotus Node is different on this perspective, that perspective. Exactly. So, yeah, 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 that 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 that's is is one of the things I'm going to focus on 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 keep in mind that this works like this and that works like that, and um, it's uh, going to be technical but also um, um, uh, well uh, tips and tricks and uh, non-technical tips and tricks. Mm-hmm. Well, I uh, definitely look forward to it because uh, although I haven't, you know. Came uh, come across Zarafa myself. I I know there are quite some de- well, quite well depends on what you call quite, but there are some deployments out there that are still be wait uh, still waiting to be moved to exchange. So <laughs> I think yeah. a lot of people are uh, really yeah. thankful for those uh, those words of yours. Yeah, and and even if you don't have Zarafa, but another solution uh, that that's comparable, um, you'll probably get some some good pointers out of those articles. At least that's that's my hope of it. I'm sure it will be. The the, the topic that I was uh, going to mention was uh, so I don't I, I don't like to mention my own articles too much. <laughs> you, you wouldn't think that from the last uh, ten minutes. Um, was a uh, one that uh, was forwarded through to our our contributors list as a, a topic, which is a uh, uh, ideas from myself on what you might want to do if you want to troubleshoot slow mailbox moves to Office three six five. So. Uh, you, you, I bet you'll have a few thoughts on this, uh, Mr. Hybrid. <laughs> Captain Hybrid. <laughs> yeah. Because um, it can be a, it can be a pain. And uh, this, is, this is some simple things to have a look at. And uh, this uh, article is for Search Exchange, uh, part of the Tech Target Network. And, yes, you do have to register to view it, well, or just scroll down. Um, is, is looking at the sort of problems that you might have uh, when you start moving mailboxes to Office 365. And uh, if you've got a big, fast line and you're, you're finding that mailboxes are stalling or perhaps not moving as, as quickly as you were expecting them to do. Uh, and on one hand, it, it's not going to batter your whole 100 meg line and move mailboxes at 100 megabits a second uh, when you move to Office 365. You're not going to get that, that full speed. But uh, sometimes there are things where you can improve it, uh, especially if you're using TMG or some other limited, rate-limiting solution uh, where it's doing something in the middle uh, to stop it or you've got a problem with your load balancer. And this is an article that, that has a look at some of the things that you might need to have a look at and you can sort of check off on your list uh, before you start moving mailboxes to Office 365. Well, I was very happy with that article because I, I recently uh, got a, a client question about how long would a migration to Office 365 take? And, uh, well, your article has some good pointers to, to watch uh, out for. So I was very happy about, with that. Yeah, I, I mean, in, in general, I mean, a, a good approach that I seem to uh, be going back to is uh, suspending when ready to complete. Uh, Michael, have you done anything like that? Has, has anyone else found that useful? Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, I, I find that you know generally a, a good thing to do because it's like a sort of pre-staging that you do, uh, and then completion just goes more predictable way of you know completing a batch of users. So yeah, I, I fully agree that that is is a good thing. I usually don't do that if I'm just you know moving one or two mailboxes and I 
that don't really care when it when they when they finish. But if you're really moving batches of users, 10, 20, 30, or X amount of of of, uh, of uh, mailboxes at once, I I do find that a a very good approach. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I've, I found that useful, especially getting it ready to complete and uh, and then being able to switch batches of users very, very quickly who have got large mailboxes. So I, uh, recently, uh, the, the last customer that I was... Well, not the last, last but one. Um, I've done quite a few Office 365 migrations, actually, already this year, uh, which is weird. It's only... It's not even the end of January yet. And uh, the, the one earlier this year um, was uh, not massive, uh, but they had lots of big, big mailboxes. Uh, it hosted in a, a data center, third-party data center, but not a, a big breakout to the internet, and it would have cost a lot to upgrade that. So pre-staging all those mailboxes made a massive difference because it was just much, much easier to release big batches of users or people just like bam, 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 and they're gone, over. Within, you know, five, ten minutes, uh, someone who had a 10, meg, 10 gig mailbox was straight over. And, uh, you know, did, obviously the stuff to make sure that mailboxes do the initial sync easily it's very useful but that can get around a, a lot of problems with uh, throttled or slow uh, mailbox moves because you only need that last push to get them across yep yep totally agree um and that article kind of you know inspired me to write a similar article which i'm still trying to finish between all the other things i'm, I'm doing right now um, on you know you were talking about what to do when you have slow migrations and uh, I've seen a lot of, of of moves just fail for several several reasons and I'm kind of doing what follow up article on this like what to do when your uh, mailbox moves are failing because I was just recently hitting an issue myself with a load balancer that was you know giving some quite odd behavior uh, you know the one the article that I pushed out on the layer 7 and uh, continue 100 header thing that was one of the oh, things yeah. you might just see in, in real life and it was pretty interesting uh, it, it required you know there's a lot of troubleshooting sometimes involved before you actually understand what's happening and that you know where it comes from um, even though a, a something a workaround might be simple as just you know making some changes uh, to the configuration or just changing one you know switch from yes to no uh, and I think, you know, people moving to Office 365 should be fully prepared. So that's why I definitely like the article of yours, because these are things you and I both know they do happen, and they almost happen every time you do a uh, a project from on-premises to Office 365. It's just things that you need to, uh, to learn uh, and things that you have to live with. So uh, with your hybrid migrations, then, in, in general, do you, are you tending to lean towards... Uh, switching big large batches of users uh to to get round coexistence issues or uh drips and drabs well um you know the the story has two sides to it um it, it all depends you know available bandwidth time frame amount of data that you want to push out uh if you're bandwidth constraints then you know trying to move up a large batch of users at once is just an big no-no. It's just something you cannot do, or cannot do easily. Let, let me put it that way. It can be done, but not as easily as you might think. Well, um, this customer, uh, 
did moved all the mailboxes ready to go the whole lot yeah of all the remaining ones uh and it left that going suspend when ready to complete left that for a week uh-huh. running a new well, take a week yeah, sure. Well, then, there's no problem with it taking bam, bam, a week bam. or even two weeks. Because you, know, you know you're off-site. You know that the migration is scheduled. I think I kicked them off on the sixth of seventh of Jan, and the migration was a week week and a bit later. The following, so I kicked them off on a Tuesday. I knew that the the migration of all of the remaining users for that company was the the following Wednesday evening at ten o'clock or something like that. Was when we were going to switch everything over. Uh, and they finished like the Monday afternoon. Uh huh. Well, you know that's 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 not a problem. But if you're bandwidth constrained, like a lot of companies I know, just have a few megs piped to the internet, and if you're you know bursting that line with a mailbox move, um, that hurts people in their daily operations. Um, so you need to factor that in as well. Uh, and it all depends. If the company says, hey, we've got a ten, uh, a one gig line into, to the internet, just do whatever you need to do, then I'm fine. You know, Just pull everything up and just complete them at, at almost at once. And I'm just speaking out generally, you know, there are some things that you need to take into account. But typically, uh, I, I like to use batches. And basically, we start with just a few names. But because of the dependencies uh, for mailbox access, uh, calendar sharing and stuff, we end up with just a few people to start with and end up with maybe 200, 250, even more people in a batch that have to be moved simultaneously just because it's a web of connections like, you know, this is the manager of that person, that person also needs access to that other person's mailbox, and then you just a cascade from one mailbox to the other one that you have to move at the same time if you want to preserve mailbox access or even calendar access uh, cross-premises, well, yeah. which which you, you can't do. So, yeah. I mean, I mean on that topic... I've uh, there's always some edge cases where I haven't I I don't like it uh, especially when it's you know a a pilot set of users and you've got one that's of that pilot set and that maybe one or two and they're on the edge and you end up having to have some workarounds so they can access a shared mailbox that's on premise and it's it's not great. No, it it could be better. Uh, definitely, you know, I think I have two uh, ideas on idea scale <laughs> that actually request an improvement on that area because mm. uh, the more projects I'm doing, the more I'm running into that issues. And primarily, you know, the cross premises uh, mailbox access is, is is a huge one that's causing you know projects to be more complex than they have to be uh, because you need yeah. to factor that in. Because it's it's clean up after you know after that that main migration because then you've got to have someone visit that user again Uh and do something for them and they're part of the pilot as well so they they have a horrible experience they they don't like that and you're and you've got to explain that you've got to make sure that the user understands that this is you know you're part of the pilot batch this is actually you know you're your half and half it's it's going to be resolved after it so you know when you give well, us your feedback 
don't take that too much into account because that- well they shouldn't care even if they're in, in in a pilot for them it is a loss of productivity a loss of possibility and you know honestly I, I can't I, I don't think you can expect from an end user and I mean that with all due respect for them to actually you know make a distinction between oh yes this is a feature I will get back afterwards for them it's just hey I'm testing something and it's not working period and that's how they should assess it as well because that's the most truthful way they can do it can they do their job and just because you know uh, some of the limitations are just painful uh, that's the only way I can put it um, and and I know that these things will get better over time uh, there have been some improvements uh, since the very beginning and I'm sure they will continue to improve but right now you know uh, you and I and a lot of people with us we, we know that these are the things that's causing us the issues in, in, in hybrid deployments or even in migrations to Office 365. Yeah, I mean, it, I wish they'd give us a real roadmap on what they're going to do and when they're going to do it. Yes. I, I understand they probably don't want to do that because a lot of projects might get put on hold because it's like, well, we'll wait six months then. Well, maybe, maybe. I, well, I don't know. Uh, one of the things that, you know, I, I don't like to see, it, it, it's entirely, well, it's not entirely different, but... Um, I run into this issue more and more often, but if you have a company that's already running hybrid and that company federates, I mean exchange federates, with another oh, company, yeah. you run into the free busy issues with the hybrid tenants. And the more people that are actually in a hybrid deployment, the more you face that issue. Uh, because two years ago, I never had that issue. Why not? Because yeah. there weren't as many hybrid deployments as there are today. But now, a lot of uh, a large part of my customer base is is running hybrid, and they're actually facing these issues today that they that uh, other uh, partner companies cannot query the availability of their cloud users because of the so, limitation. So this limitation is, if you have federated sharing set up on-premises and you've got some of your users in the cloud, the company you're federating with does an availability request. It hits on-premises, but that doesn't proxy it on to Office 365 to get the availability or calendar sharing. Yep. Correct, and yeah. I'm actually having... And really, uh, it should be a feature of the availability proxy service. Well, same, it's, it's more complex that it than that. Acts, it acts as a... For example, if you've got mailboxes on an old version of Exchange, it'll, it, it'll proxy that on. So why can't it do the same for Office 365? Well, the problem that you have there is that Office 365, you need to go through the uh, Federation Gateway uh, for Microsoft as well. Um, I understand technically get, why you can't do it, but I'd yeah. say it should be a feature that's built in. Sure. It, should, it should be part of the the solution. It's not. I, it's, it's a missing feature that should be there. It's not, I agree. There's not a real I, technical barrier to doing it because that because something at the moment take gets that request to exchange 2013 or 2010 and goes oh i've got to send that to a 20 i've got to do that an old way to the 2007 server and then pull that back and then send it back out over the federation gateway it does that at the moment for any hybrid deployment that's got an older version of exchange but it could also intercept that same request and go oh well that uses an office 365 now i'm going to go back out that way over I'm going to go back out over the Federation Gateway to Office 365 and get their availability and send it back. So it, technically it's possible. It is. It definitely is. But it isn't, you know, it isn't ready in the product just yet. Um, and I wonder why it's taking them so long to put it in there. Maybe it isn't prior to, uh, prior, uh, 
ah, it's not a priority. Sorry about that. Um, but I, that's one thing that I really look forward to to uh, getting in exchange. So what you should do is actually go to Idea Scale and up, uh, upvote my idea. I voted that one already. So, oh, you yes. did. Awesome. Listeners, <laughs> listeners, please vote it. Uh, and and the, the other way that these things happen is if you are a Microsoft customer with a TAM or whatever, making sure that, that you pass that on via whatever routes you have to Microsoft. Because these ideas, you know, in, if they see hundreds of votes on idea scale, then it might happen. Um, but if they don't uh, get anything from actual customers, actual paying customers that they're aware of, then they're not going to see anything uh, actually happen in the product because they need that feedback from real customers as well. So, yeah, upvote it. But also, if it is important to you for those kind of features, make sure that it gets uh, requested however you can. Well, perhaps on our uh, panels during uh, a link, uh, the link conference in the uh, Mac Exchange Conference, we can uh, point towards the IdeaScale website. Yeah. How about we wear idea scale shirts? <laughs> right. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, much more needs to be done with the, the hybrid story, not only for, for migrations, but for long term coexistence. And we did bring it up in our panel at uh, IT Dev Connections in Las Vegas. Um, you know, asked uh, the, the team, they, they're obviously. Greg said that they were aware that customers wanted that to happen, uh, but we didn't get an answer as to, yeah, you know, give it a few months, it'll, it'll work. So, you know, you can just keep on plugging away. A question for you, uh, just out of interest, really. Uh, what scenarios do you think, or what, what's the maximum size customer that might use a cutover or staged migration? Oh, boy, that's a difficult one. Because um, that would depends on how much mail they have, not yeah. how many users. You know, it, it 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 all depends on their bandwidth, size of mailboxes, amount of users, and whether or not they actually want coexistence. They want to take their time. What's their time frame? Um, wow, there is so much, you know, information missing to kind of answer that question. And I, I'm going to give you the best answer I can give you as a consultant. It depends. <laughs> I, yeah, I heard that though. Um, I mean, although I have to say that that after experiencing some some um, well n not so well uh, uh, performed uh, migrations just because of several d d different issues, I'm uh, a little bit more inclined to do hybrid migrations than stage or cutover because you have a, a lot more. W w when it goes wrong, you have uh, a bit more. Uh, well, a, a viable fallback situation with a hybrid uh, environment. Yeah, well, you know, there are uh, some some uh, positive things about doing hybrid, but there are sometimes uh, issues that you cannot, you know, that you have to work around or things that the customer just doesn't want to go hybrid because if they're still running 2003 or 2007, that actually means you have to introduce a 2010, which is the disruptive change. Uh, right. yeah. it, it takes a lot of time. Well, I mean, there's a lot of things that you need to take into account, which obviously will add time to the project, will, it, will add, um, you know, expenses to the project, which, make, which makes it more expensive overall uh, and therefore might not happen so in such cases maybe a third party tool or doing a cut over a staged migration m might make more sense 
Um, but you know, if you're doing a stage migration at that point and you have to tell the customer, hey, well, we're doing stage, but you're, you'll not have any, you know, that rich coexistence features like free busy, uh, between your on-premises and the cloud. Um, they might just say, hey, we don't want that either. So that in, kind in of rules of, out stage. In terms of client experience as well. Yeah, that's, that's, that's what it's all about, you know. If they don't require any coexistence at all or they don't care how email addresses or how uh, colleagues see one another while during the migration, then, you know, do whatever you have to do. Um, do a cutover if you can uh, technically or if you cannot do a staged migration. Um, but if they don't agree on the limitations, then you have to be either creative or go hybrid. But again, hybrid can be disruptive at times. So there's, you know, much more at play just than just saying, hey, I'm going to do this or going to do that. Um, that's that's basically for me, that's the, the most difficult decision one has to take in a project, decide what approach you're going to take. Um, whether you're going to use the building tools, whether you're going to do hybrid, or even go to third-party tools, because there are some pretty awesome third-party tools out there. Yeah, yeah excellent point. I like that. Yeah, it's probably time to move on. Uh, we've talked enough about Office 365 for for now, anyway. Uh, so some more articles that we've got are online. Uh, another Microsoft blog post is about common mailbox and folder sharing scenarios. Uh, guided walkthroughs are now available uh, on the Exchange Team blog. Uh, anyone had a look at those? Yeah, I had a short look at it. Yeah, I had a quick look. Uh, interesting stuff, useful to know about. Uh, yeah, it's, I think it's just very useful for people who are not familiar with Office 365 or so, or administrators maybe who were wanting to do their things themselves instead of well, asking somebody else to create, for example, shared folders or shared mailboxes, yeah, which could be used to like share a, contact lists. And a, it's, a mix it's pretty of, easy. A mix of stuff for admins and, uh, and end users. So bits to pick through and uh, might be useful to put as part of your internal user comms. Uh, some of it uh, useful for admins as well. Yeah, yeah. The the only thing what I was missing is it's completely focused, of course, to Exchange 2013 and uh, Outlook 2013. While there are still a lot of deployments of or of Outlook 2010 in combination with Office 365 in the field. Yeah. So uh, the idea of these guided walkthroughs is it's it's like a, a KB article. And yeah. uh, it's almost like a choose your own adventure. So ask you questions and take you on a different route. <laughs> choose your own adventure. Yeah. And it sort of takes you on Turn a to page 26. Yeah. Are you planning on doing this? Yes. <laughs> then you should do this. Okay. And now do that. And uh, it takes you through a bunch of steps and you end up at a different result depending on the options you pick. Uh, but it starts off like a normal KB article. But instead of it just being one big long article that has a bunch of links at the top and then you know it says, do you want to do it this way? Do you want to do it that way? And you click it and it just take, scrolls down. It, it, it goes through a set of steps uh, from start to finish. Uh, the, uh, the, the first thing I saw that was like that, I think, was the... Uh, uh, site failover, site recovery uh, stuff, and they started off with a PowerPoint spreadsheet where you click through, and I think they replaced that, or uh, something similar was replaced uh, with this 
guided walkthrough. And uh, then they did a public folder troubleshooting guided walkthrough as well. Uh, so, yes, good stuff. Uh, uh, another thing that I, I'm almost disappointed um, but uh, but glad to see is... Uh, I'm disappointed because I planned at some point to put it into my Exchange Environment Report script, uh, but I never got around to it. And it's a database growth reporting script. So you run it multiple times, and it gives you an idea for uh, how, how much your da- Exchange databases are growing. Uh, has anyone had a play with that? Uh, why don't I look at the article? No, I mean, I, I use your, your, your reporting script like, you know, again, you should charge for that because I would at least give you $50. <laughs> but I know I, I haven't checked the other one out. Pay me in beer. Um, actually, I, I did take a look at it because um, we're uh, I'm working with a customer that's trying to, you know, uh, use uh, Orchestrator and, and other things to uh, automate some things in exchange and, and pull reporting stuff out of it. And then they had some, you know, database space issues in the past because they had some fast-growing databases and they didn't know where that came from. And what what I found out is that the way they pulled data from their database is kind of, um, I'm not gonna say sucked, but wasn't really wasn't really great. So by taking a look at this article, they they kind of understood. Oh, okay, this is how we can. most easily, you know, pull the data that we need and and build some trending of our own because they don't have any specialized programs uh, that can do the trending for them. So from an uh, informational point of view, I really like the article because it was very in-depth with lots of examples, lots of great information that you'd need. So if you're looking into building your own, you know, reporting script uh, or adding it onto, you know, existing reporting scripts, then definitely uh, this is an article that you have to read. If you missed a Nick conference, uh, there's uh, some of Starley's. Uh, Starley's uh, sessions are online on his website. He's done some topics on exchange integrations with Link. You should look at those, Michael, if you haven't already. Um, given you were saying how you were looking forward to seeing Paul talk about those. Um, but uh, integrating Exchange and Link together, uh, the videos for those sessions uh, from the NIT conference are online, uh, and we'll put the link up to that on there. Uh, and Starley might talk uh, a bit more about the success he had with those on the, the next episode that he's on. Get UM Auto Attendant Diagram, a new script to diagram your Exchange Auto Attendant in Visio. Now, if that sounds interesting to you, then you want to check out that link. Um, so, that it is cool. It is. Yeah, it's really that, cool. That does it not awesome. sound interesting to me. <laughs> oh no, no, it is. It is actually. It is cool. And I've seen uh, the outputs from it, but it doesn't you know, look nice. Which? Well, <laughs> well, if you come from environment that uses, yeah, those can be very complicated and uh, and critical. You know, response groups are usually IVR type stuff. Or, you know, point of sale type customer service type things that, you know, link or exchange will use from a voice perspective. And, you know, there's not a lot of good, I mean, even the GUI to create them is basically weak. And, you know, I mean, it's, so anything at all to help, you know, uh, get your hand, you know, get your head around, you know, the flow of these is, I think, a, a huge benefit. But, yeah. you know, that's what floats my boat. <laughs> exactly. That's, that's the point, you know. Uh, how often do you come into a customer that, where you ask the customer, hey, can you give me the documentation of this? And they go like, huh, what? Um, so I, that's, I had one that's, and they said, 
what, what are the auto attendants that we've got? They didn't even know that they had them. Yeah, well, that's where you uh, would so use So working out whether thing. they use them was another matter. So this, this, is, this is going to go into my tool set for discovery, uh, for sure. Yeah, I can see where it's useful. Okay, I, I, I admit it. You stand corrected. Say, say you apologize. I apologize. <laughs> this will be really useful when moving mailboxes to Office 365. I promise that I will use it every day. Say it. Because, uh, I promise I will try to use it on every E4 deployment. That's, that's, that's where I can see it being useful. I, I'm, I'm not over. Uh, I'm not overly keen on auto attendance in general. I, I mean, who, who likes auto attendance as, a, as an end user? No one. I do. Fine. <laughs> Please say your There's name. always one. But Sorry, you're a lingo. You that. have to like them. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Uh, <laughs> uh, another another link topic. I said we were going to rush through these and not give them the attention they deserve. Uh, I didn't say I was going to deride them like I am. I'm so sorry. Uh, link meeting update tool. So if you change your link server URLs, but you've got calendar appointments uh, with the old link server URLs, this tool will go through and. Bam, update them all in your calendar. Now, is this meant to be ran by end users or run as a login? Yeah, script? yeah, it installs as an MSI. Um, you know, and it's weird, I'm, on one of my machines, I couldn't find, well, you know, it goes a whole, you know, you can go into a whole Windows 881 thing, like finding, you know, you, you install something. Where is it? I don't know. You know? <laughs> but I tried, so I installed it and I couldn't find it. But so I dug into, you know, program files and found it. But it looks pretty cool. Um, I didn't get really tested out in a huge environment yet. But, uh, um, it looks interesting. I and it certainly is one big pain in the ass about when you're moving people across some uh, different uh, pools and stuff. Cool, because that that does look useful. Um, but yeah, so the idea is that you might have to deploy that to clients first, and then run a script or get them to do it themselves. I couldn't see getting them to do it themselves would be viable. Yeah, I, I, yeah, it's gonna be interesting. Maybe it's you know one of those things you just have them run once as part of an instruction post migration or something. Too. I mean, that, that sounds like it'd be better as a an AWS script that used delegation to go through and do it, uh, and run server side or ran as an admin. Uh, so maybe that's a version two point thing. Uh, you can stick that in your link idea site if you want. Uh, just one from me there. Um, there's a new blog post on link server design, planning, and policies that gives you a policies template. Uh, Johan thought that we should talk about it, um, and I asked him if he'd talk about it, and he refused to. <laughs> because, he, because he hadn't read the article. I haven't read it, no. It's <laughs> <laughs> that important. That Johan said, hell no. Well, I had a, a very short look at it, and it's well... It's a really nice template which you can use to create your policies for link and that kind of stuff. So if you're planning a link environment, then, well, surely have a look at it and, and use it while planning your environment. That's the only thing I can tell about it because I I had a small look at it, but not not clearly detailed as, as normally. So sorry for that. Now, this one's interesting, and this is our last but one topic. So, Saver, the last link topic uh, before our single Office 365-only topic for the show. The world's first Twitter-to-link instant messaging bridge has been released uh, by Event Zero. And uh, I believe the name also comes courtesy of, of Pat Richard as well, who came up with the name 
for them to use. So Event Zero, uh, who are doing a party at this link conference that they're all going to, uh, have built a Twitter to link IM Bridge. So if you can't get around to opening your web browser or phone to use Twitter, you could just use Link instead. And when you're using Link, all the Twitter messages could come into your Link client. What do you think, guys? Is this something? Yeah, it's, it's very cool. I've been playing with it. Uh, look at also John McKinney's blog. Uh, we should put a link to it because he kind of went through it. And uh, it yeah, it's cool. I mean, I can see you know, I can see you know, you. I can definitely see some actual real uses for it. Um, you know, depending on how you how many people you follow too, it could be more annoying than that. But for customer service type people or people who are doing stuff, you know, with like you know SEO or that kind of stuff, you know, marketing types. Um, it could be a really cool way to to uh, to you know follow without a Twitter client. Also, in environments that you know may not allow Twitter, you know you could you know sort of a in some ways you could backdoor not being allowed by policy, you know court like security policy following you know loading Twitter or whatever from work. You could actually follow people via link at least a, you know read only anyway, right? Um, but uh, yeah, I see John McKinney's blog too because he went through and kind of uh, there's a couple really neat. Like switches and things you can do. It's not. It's not. It's not just kind of a dumb thing. You can you know cue things when you're only inactive, um, so that when you know when you become active, it then only then sends the tweets in inbound. Um, some neat stuff. I would definitely check it out. So, so this is perhaps embryonic, but the idea could be that uh, a full application for contact centers could be uh, built around this, where when someone tweets at a company and goes, oh, "I'm sick. You, I'm sick of the service I'm getting from you," uh, uh, it pops up in a custom a prescribed agent's Twitter oh, absolutely, well, yeah. link link line, and then they can reply to the person. And it would be archived in that case if, uh, you know, if yeah. they're doing archiving too, so for compliance. Okay, okay I can get that. Right? As, as an end user. Yeah, as a person, I'm always thinking, wheels are turning, baby. Yeah, yeah, okay, I get that. That's pretty cool. Uh, so we'll put a, a link up to that, and, and it's, it's got a, a cool sort of name to it as well. Twink. Is that right? Twink. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I pointed out though to uh, to on Twitter. Um, be careful when you search for that spelling because uh, <laughs> at work you might find links for another phrase that's similar, but spelled differently. Um, it could be embarrassing. I just <laughs> put it out there. And, and I was just thinking about a candy bar, Twinkie. It's sounds like a Mars or Snickers thing, like Milky Way. No. No. Or is it just me? <laughs> You're just hungry, aren't you? I am, actually. (laughs) Our last topic for the day. Managing Office 365 email addresses is easy with PowerShell when you're using Dersync. So uh, so these guys have put together uh, a set of scripts. And admit it, I'm not going to be the only one who's thought about putting together a set of scripts to do this but hasn't got around to it. It's actually, you know, a really obvious good idea to, to do. So when you remove... Uh, exchange from an environment. Uh, you still have Dersync for things like password sync and creating accounts, um, but uh, you often leave a hybrid server uh, that is just there for management. So they have somewhere to manage the AD attributes using some exchange management tools. Uh, now, some organizations wouldn't like to be told, right, well, you're going to have to manage all your email addresses using PowerShell. Uh, but some may find this very, very useful. It's a PowerShell module that allows you to manage things like the proxy addresses, the additional email addresses of a user uh, in Active Directory. 
so you, so they don't have to use ADC Edit or the Active Directory Users and Computers Attribute Editor. So until someone brings out a, a nice Active Directory Users and Computers DLL type plugin uh, or standalone app for free then this is quite a, a good option uh, for organizations that want to keep on using dersync um, but don't want to have any sort of exchange in, installed anywhere they'd like to be able to manage stuff without any on-premise type exchange tools um, so yeah I, th- I think this could be really useful Michael is telling me that uh, that these apps exist already Z hire for yeah. example yeah Z-Hire. well Z hire really yeah, the, it's not really an app. It's actually a GUI to a PowerShell underneath. Yeah, but it's, they've been around for HR quite a while. management solution yeah, for, yeah. for managing and, attributes and users. But and they do Office 365, so... Mm. Yeah, I usually modify that in anyway. I'm old yeah. school. So these kind of solutions have been around for a while, uh, but I don't think they've been you know, picked up generally uh for for what they can do or for what they're intended to do, and usually it's part of you know part of a suite that does other things. I think the Z hire or Z hire thing that I just talked about, it does much more than than only you know updating Office 365 attributes for a non-exchange environment um, where you typically keep a uh, on-premises management server. So, but yeah, uh, yeah, but, but you could use Fim to do that anyway, but. You know, if you've got a provisioning type of solution, but if you've got nothing, you know, if you're a small sort of organization, uh, I don't know, 1,000 users, and you're moving to Exchange Online, this might fit the bill. Uh, Because I'm not aware of any just simple Active Directory users and computer type add-ons. I've seen them for Exchange on-premises, uh, especially, you know, the 2003 to 2010 movers, there was that the, there was a a certain type of admin that was quite keen to use Active Directory users and computers for managing Exchange, and they'd be quite happy to buy uh, a third-party product. I can't remember the name of of the most popular one, um, but um, but I've I've not seen the, the same out there for Office 365. Okay. I must admit, I've not really looked. Um, but, uh, <laughs> well, to be truth be told, I don't even care. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, so, so yes, it could be useful. So it's simple PowerShell module uh, for managing the uh, ma- managing proxy addresses. Um, so yeah, uh, check that out. It's free. Uh, it doesn't cost you a thing. Cool. Simple. And, of course, it's a simple set of scripts because it's not having to do a lot. It's only managing, really, one attribute in Active Directory. Uh, the way they've written it, it, they're using the Active Directory PowerShell snap-in. So they're not just using the sort of ADSY PowerShell stuff directly. Uh, so it does require uh, act the Active Directory PowerShell module on the server you're using. Uh, but, yes, it's it's bright. It's quite good. Uh, so check it out. Uh, I'd like to thank all my co-hosts today for joining me for a longer show than we expected. Um, we, we thought we were going to race through these topics today. That might be a record. Yeah. Um, but we had a lot to go through. And I, think I said before the show, we're just going to go through everything really quickly. It's going to be about half an hour. Uh, so thanks for listening. Um, and I'd like to thank, uh, in anticipation that he'll be free to do it, this show's editor, uh, Mr. Andrew Price, uh, who I know has had a pretty hard week with a click-to-run deployment, and I'll probably be talking about uh, his uh, click-to-run deployment uh, that went uh, 
that, that he learnt a lot from uh, in an upcoming show, uh, or possibly at uh, the Office 365 user group uh, that he's uh, talking at uh, and running in Birmingham, UK, uh, on the, uh, I think, the 12th of Feb. Again, the UC Architects is sponsored today by Instant Technologies, experts in instant messaging archiving, e-discovery and compliance applications for Link. Learn more and get started in minutes with a free trial at tryhrauditor.com or follow at Team Instant on Twitter. Kemp Technologies is the number one price performance load balancer for Microsoft workloads and they are a gold certified Microsoft partner both in messaging and communications. That's exchange and link to you and me. Kemp's load balancers are ADCs. (laughs) What? Uh, yeah, I don't like the partner relationship stuff. So just say exchange and link. Kemp's low balancers and ADCs come with configuration templates for link and exchange. We've used them and they're good. Kemp's new virtual load balancers are the most powerful on the market and have the same features as their hardware loan balancers. In fact, there's no real difference between the two. For more information and to download a trial, go to kemptechnologies.com. We want to remind you that the UC Architects are online. Visit our website at www.theucarchitects.com or follow us on Twitter at the UC Architects where you'll find Pat and Andrew tweeting about uh, the show, mostly. Or follow us on Facebook at Facebook, like us on Facebook, I should say, at facebook.com slash the UC Architects. And we're on LinkedIn. Just search for us there. Podcast episodes are always available in the iTunes stores, the Zoom Marketplace, and in your favourite RSS client, like Outlook. And, of course, see our websites for links to everything that we've talked about on the show today. We'll see you back for the next episode with Pat Hosting. Thanks for listening. (laughs) 